So we're coming to look today at Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be thinking about verses 19 to 22 at the end of that chapter. Um, I really wish that we had more time to do more weeks on this little section but we've planned for Jai to be preached next Sunday and we've given him uh, the first few verses of chapter 3 which means that I'm not at liberty to take longer with this section because otherwise we mess up our preaching schedule with Jai preaching next week so we'll try to make a good fist of uh, looking at these verses I don't think um, I can possibly say everything I'd like to say so maybe we'll come back to Ephesians uh, some other time these verses are among the most eloquent and amazing verses about the church that you'll find anywhere in the Bible and uh, at the end of this chapter Paul's language kind of rises almost to a crescendo his, his whole logic in a way has been building to this very point um, in chapter, chapter 3 really is a bit of a digression and then he returns to this theme at the end of chapter 3 and through the rest of the book um, the idea of the church is very precious in Paul's mind and the obvious question the title that I've given to our thoughts today is does your idea of the church match Paul's idea that's a good question for us to ask what I mean by that is I hope today that I can show you something desirable here from the Bible about the church my parents used to say to us when we were children they might give us 50 pence 50p to go to the shop and and my mum would say don't let it burn a hole in your pocket are you familiar with that phrase don't let it burn a hole in your pocket I was reading one writer this week who said this is a passage that should burn a hole in our hearts. This is a passage that should inspire and ignite um, our our enthusiasm. And I hope that as we look at this it will cause your hearts to leap up and want to grab hold of it. I hope that this is something that you will be inspired to give your life to. Um, the the, the vision that Paul holds out here of the church one of the issues we have when we think about the church is that we often start are we on? I might have to leave it to you to forward us on no? I'll leave you to work on that then oh there we go does your idea of church match this one? Okay. Sometimes I think our problem with church is we start in the wrong place. We can either come to church as a consumer and um, we think that the church is the problem. I go to church and things are not to my taste. The music's not what I like. The colour of the carpet isn't what I like. The people are not like me. I come to church and it doesn't fit with what I want. So I'm going to find a different one that meets my needs better than this one does. On the other hand, sometimes we can come to church feeling like we are the worst problem in the world. And the church wouldn't want someone like me in it. I I love to come, but I wouldn't be allowed to be intimately involved I feel like my life is such a mess at the moment and once I've sorted that out maybe then the church might be willing to let me become part of of what is going on in the first case it is perhaps the case that you are sitting in judgement over the church whereas in the second case perhaps you are coming to church expecting the church to be sitting in judgement over you But in both cases, the reality is what you're doing is dancing around the edges of the church. And not actually, what you're doing is spectating rather than participating in the life 
of the church. I want to make a simple plea today to all of you. Don't start in either of those places. Come and start with the Bible and let the Bible shape your idea of what church is. What we need to do somehow is get fired up by the vision here. This is how Paul views the church and it is an awesome vision. In reality, our churches will always be works in progress. But hopefully we'll see something today in this passage that will make us want to give ourselves to this kind of vision. To give our hearts, our gifts, our time, our money, our energy, our enthusiasm and commitment. In the end, none of us will do anything in life unless we believe in what we're doing, will we? And we won't sacrifice anything for a church unless we believe that that is a very, very high calling for our lives. I have three simple points today. Um, And they're on the sheet there. Uh, First of all, the church is a work of art. Secondly, the church is the ultimate togetherness that we all long for. And thirdly, and most profoundly, the church is the place where God lives. If those three things aren't enough to fire your imagination, then uh, come back next week and we'll have another go. Uh, Last week, we were thinking about uh, power. And under each of these headings, I've put a little contrast there. I'll try and tease these out as we go through. It is very unusual in life, isn't it, to see something that is immensely powerful and also beautiful artistic those things in life often don't go together often things are either very powerful or very beautiful but very rarely do those things blend together last week we were thinking about power Um, chapter 1 of Ephesians is you could argue is all about God's power I don't want to preach the same sermon twice, but Paul speaks in chapter 1 and verse 10 of God's desire to bring all things together in Christ. Um, Unity under the Lordship of Christ is the story of history from God's point of view. That takes real power. And Paul, in chapter 1, prays that their eyes would be opened so that they might see some things. And one of those things in verse 19 of chapter 1 is that their eyes would be opened to see God's incomparably great power. Paul says that power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly realms. This is a kind of explosive divine power one of the things that we then saw in chapter 2 this was a slide from last week when, when you look at chapter 2 it divides into two halves verses 1 to 10 are all about God's power individually Paul says you were dead and God made you alive that's individual but in this section that Emma read to us verse 11 to 22 it is all about relational uh, issues and Paul uses the examples of Jews and Gentiles here he's writing as a Jew to Gentiles who feel as we saw last week ostracised, excluded great barrier between Jews and Gentiles and yet through God's power people who wanted to previously strangle one another are now sitting side by side in the same new group it is an incredible picture of God's power that is Paul's logic God is powerful to save people and to bring them into relationship with one another individually and corporately so if you're the kind of person who thinks I can be a Christian on my own technically you can be a Christian without being part of a church I'm not saying that isn't possible But that isn't Paul's logic here. Paul says God's power is at work to save you and to enable you to participate. God's power is designing to do both those things. 
So the church is a place where dead people are made alive, where people who previously didn't get on do get on. And, and, it, and it's all because of Christ. Paul says that it is through the cross that these two groups that hated each other are brought into one new relationship. The rest of Ephesians is also all about power. Look with me at chapter 3 and verse 7. Paul says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. The very job that Paul is doing is from, it is by God's grace, but it is through God's immense power working through him. We could go to chapter 3 and verse 15. Paul there prays again for these Christians in Ephesus. He says in verse, sorry, verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. We could go on through the rest of the book. The whole thing, power is a big motif in, in this letter but it's more than just raw, raw power the church is actually a very creative work of art do you think of the church in these terms what God is doing in the church is artistic not just powerful look, look with me in chapter 2 it's true. the same thing is true individually Chapter 2 and verse 10. For we, we, Paul says, are God's workmanship. That is an unusual word for Paul to use, isn't it? We are God's workmanship. We, we have some guys in our work who make things. We call them craftsmen. They do a lot of sanding and finishing and painting and polishing and gluing and when they've finished what they've created looks incredible those things are their workmanship think, do, you, do you think of yourself in those terms individually Paul says we are God's workmanship it is like he is the master craftsman fashioning something within us and out of us that will bring glory to his great name. We are God's workmanship. But it's true corporately as well. The passage that we read, I mean, Paul, Paul here, he's not an English student really. Well, he was never English, was he? He was writing in Greek, but you know what I mean. We're told that we mustn't mix our metaphors and Paul does that all over the place here. And he starts off using relational metaphors. We'll come to this in a minute. But what he, look at what he says from verse 20. You, you are members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. This is language of magnificence. This, this is God creating and fashioning and building something that is awesome to look at. This building that is rising is a glorious thing to look at. It is aesthetically beautiful. There is power here, but there's artistry as well. Look, look with me into chapter 3. And, um, and I'm, I'm just looking at verse 10, but pick up from verse 9. Uh, Paul says that his job, his task, 
was to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. If there was a museum in the heavenly realms, all of the angelic beings would be buying tickets and day passes and annual passes to go to the museum. And what would exhibit A.B.? The church. All of these angelic beings. What Paul is saying is God has fashioned the church to be so aesthetically pleasing that even the heavenly beings will look at it and go, wow, I'll have an annual pass for that, please. That's Paul's point. God's intention was that the manifold wisdom of God would be displayed, shown off, so that people would see it and go, look at that, that is amazing. There's power here, and there is artistry here. God has made dead people live, and he has made people who would otherwise be at enmity to sit side by side. So let me ask you, does your idea of church match this one? The church is not a small thing. The church is a demonstration of God's power and creative artistry. And that is cosmic in its significance. No, I I mean, I I don't think our building looks that artistic. I don't think the size of our numbers here look that powerful. But if God is at work in people's hearts, saving people and welding them into new and healed and restored relationships, that is something that is both powerful and creatively artistic. Is that something we're striving for? Second um, point here, the church is the ultimate togetherness that we all long for. Let's, um, oh, look at that. Did I do that or did you do that? Did I do that? There's creativity and artistry right there. The church is the expression of the togetherness we all yearn for. First of all, there's a sense of enmity being overcome here. Hatred even. Paul is writing to Gentiles who've been outcast-like forever. We were thinking about this last week, so I'm not going to go over it all again. Verse 11. Therefore, Paul says, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, and as we said last week, the word uncircumcised there is an insult. The Jews were calling the Gentiles foreskins. You Gentiles who have been mocked and ostracized, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizen Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. And here in verse 19, Paul returns to that theme having explained how Christ overcomes the enmity, Paul says, this is his conclusion, consequently, because of Jesus, Paul's saying, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. I remember when I was 18 years old, coming to Yorkshire, and um, from Lancashire, of all places, over the Pennines, I didn't know anyone in Rotherham at all. No fam- I didn't even know where Rotherham was. And some people said to me, oh, it took take you a long, year, long time to be accepted in Yorkshire. To live in a place as an outsider is, is a very hard thing to do, isn't it? You, can't, you do belong, but then again, you don't truly belong you're, you're kind of from somewhere else and this is not really your home and, and, and as such you're not really 
accepted. Gentiles were considered to be second class citizens. They had no way in. They were outside and did not belong. They felt like immigrants who did not really belong. And Paul is writing to them here in verse 19 and saying, because of Jesus, you're no longer aliens. You're no longer considered to be foreigners. You are fellow citizens. Here's your passport, guys. You're in. You're not out. You're in now. They've had years, decades of being maligned. Paul says, because of Jesus, that is not the way it works now. And there's an intimacy to be enjoyed. Paul uses three images to describe the church here. And uh, I've put a slide here. Let me, let me show you this. Fellow citizens. First of all. Then, it, then he says, you are members of God's household. In other words, you're part of the family. You're siblings. And then he, he mixes his metaphors then and says, you're bricks. <laughs> the thing about those illustrate that, that, that has an increasing level of intimacy with it. If you're a citizen in the same country, one of you could live in Gretna Green and the other could live in Plymouth. That's not very intimate. How, how far is that in miles? I have no idea. If, but if you're part of the same family, you're a little bit closer but you could still live in Gretna Green or Plymouth and have distance between you and some family, even though you are flesh and blood, there's distance still there, relationally. But if you're a brick in a building and the builder's got his cement out and mixed his mortar and laid the bricks next to each other and this brick is next to this brick, you can't, as a brick, say, I'm a bit fed up here. I think I'm going to jump out this wall and go and live in a different wall. You, you are being built together into a building and there's no room for bricks to move about and change. There's an intimacy in that picture that is an incredible closeness. One nation, one family, one temple. We sang, didn't we, in the first song, something like that. One heart. How did it go? I don't know. Rejoice, rejoice. You know what I mean. It's there. Oneness. Unity in Christ. True, true unity has been established. What does Paul say uh, here in verse... Oh man, I need some very focals. In verse 15, at the end of verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. Paul is saying that Christ has to come, to, he's come to create a new humanity. It, it is interesting this because it doesn't mean that ethnic or racial differences are obliterated. What it does mean is that the thing that now defines you most is your relationship to Jesus. So it, it isn't that unity in Christ obliterates other differences. It, it, it is almost like Jesus is creating a new humanity that transcends all those other differences. This is one of the reasons that the church is so unique. It is not a club to join where people all have a similar interest. Sometimes when I'm um, doing marriage preparation with couples, um, one of the things we talk about is the fact that marriage is not two single people who have similar interests coming together um, it is not two, two single people whose lives overlap slightly in the middle if you were drawing a set diagram. The problem with that is that if their interests change, what then is the glue that holds that relationship together? 
if they're simply two single people who overlap, if that overlap changes, then there's no basis for the relationship to continue. The Bible, on the other hand, says that when two people are married, they become one flesh. A completely new entity is born that doesn't obliterate them as individuals, but it brings them into a new unit of one flesh. And the church is similar. It isn't just a group of individuals who are united by the same taste or the same ideas or the same interests. The church is much more foundational than that. Paul says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household. You are being built into a holy temple. You are now part of a new humanity that transcends other categories without obliterating them. If the church is a club, like the hockey club, or the tennis club, or the crown green bowling club, or the scuba diving club, if you get fed up with crown green bowling or scuba diving, you leave and do something else. The church is much more than a collection of people with the same interests. Our individual identities are not obliterated, but we've become part of something bigger than us. The many have become one. You are fellow citizens, part of a new humanity. I want to just explore an, an idea with you. I, I, don't, I don't know whether this is a bomb or not, but I, I, I think about this a lot. Um, so tell me afterwards if you think I'm being stupid. What, one of the things I've really... Um, tried to do as our kids have grown up is to, and two of them are here so they'll tell me if I'm being stupid or not is to try to help them to understand what growing up involves because when you're a teenager you're in this horrible in between time we've got some teenagers here you're not a child anymore but you're not quite a full blown adult and that time of in between time is a really strange one because there are some days that you want to be treated like an adult and so you'll say I can do it leave me alone stop telling me what to do give me some freedom I'm a grown up now you know the very next day or ten minutes later even you're like I've no idea who I am the world seems like such a scary place I need a cuddle that too and the things that are in conflict there is I want my independence but I also want to know that I'm loved I want to know I want to be me and to know that I matter as an individual but I also want to know others in a way that is fulfilling I think one of the hardest things about growing up is working this kind of thing out. How can I have independence and love at the same time? If you know the answer, put it on a postcard. Send it in to me. Oh, I forgot to put a slide on for that. Let me, um, let me just explore this. Think about this. The very nature of God in the Bible speaks into this, doesn't it? The fact that God is a trinity is extremely relevant to this question. God himself is the ultimate picture of both independence and love. Three distinct individual beings who are also one head over heels in love with one another utterly comfortable utterly known utterly admired no loss of individual identity and yet no trace of competition or conflict there's no fear in God of one of the others being unfaithful 
There's no doubt or anxiety in the Godhead. There is perfect, glorious, harmonious intimacy. I want to suggest to you that what God is in himself is actually the very thing that we long for. And Paul's writing here is full of the Trinity. Chapter 1 begins, doesn't it? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. It ends with the work of the Holy Spirit. Here in chapter 2, look with me at verse 18. All three members of the Trinity, for through him, that is Christ, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Father, Son and Spirit in one verse. Then Paul says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, you are brought in to a new way of being. Our relationships will involve confidence and commitment. For relationships to work, you have to believe that the other person loves you unconditionally. But you have to also be intentional in loving the other one unconditionally. Otherwise, our relationships can't work. This is what is going on in the Godhead all the time. Let me take you back to the very beginning because this is the root of our problem. This is spelled out very powerfully in Genesis. The writer of Genesis surveys the first marriage, Adam and Eve, and can say, the man and the woman were both naked and they felt no what? Shame. Genesis 2.25 The man and the woman were both naked and they felt no shame. In the next chapter, that perfect intimacy is destroyed. Trust is broken. Choices are made that bring guilt. And what is their first instinct? To do what? What's, their, what's Adam and Eve's first instinct? To hide. Even before that, what did they do? They covered up. Genesis chapter 3, their very first instinct when sin intruded on that perfect harmony was to cover up. And then when God comes where previously they'd felt no shame now they cannot bear to be looked upon by the other and they hide in the shadows from God himself. This is our fundamental issue. Deep down we yearn to be known and loved. We yearn not to be misunderstood. But we fear that if someone really knew what we were really like, they wouldn't like us. And so what do we do? We cover up. We wear masks. We pretend to be things that we're maybe not really, so that we can secure the love and acceptance of those around us. Before this, they'd enjoyed intimacy. Adam poignantly says, God says, Adam, where are you? Adam says, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. The independence that they craved has led to loneliness. And often, isn't it true that our lives can be one big cover-up? Sometimes maybe we realise that we are just worn out and tired because of all the pretending that we do. And the saddest thing of all is that churches can be the worst places of all for this sort of covering up, can't they? We come to church and we feel that we've got to live up something and so we, we wear masks of pretense. The very place where people ought to be able to trust one another enough to be really known is the last place where that happens. Listen, the truth is, I can only open up to other people if I believe 
that they will love me and not reject me. And others will only be able to open up to me if they feel that I'm committed, committed to them too. That can't happen if church is just somewhere you go on a Sunday for two hours, can it? Does your idea of church match up to this? For a church to work as churches should, it needs both confidence and commitment. Are you ready? Are we ready to be part of that kind of authentic relationship that Paul describes here? Fellow citizens, members together of God's household, being built into a holy temple to the Lord. You can't do that for two hours a week. Thirdly, very, very quickly, the church is the place where God lives. I'm not trying to be trivial when I say that. But the last verse of this chapter is very significant. Look with me at verse 22. Paul returns to his ultimate theme and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Did you ever read in the Bible a more profound verse than that? It's a very significant verse for all kinds of reasons. One is that it immediately smacks our individualism in the face, doesn't it? We talk, don't we, so much. In the last 30 years, maybe less so now, we talk so much, don't we, about me and my experience. Am I filled with the Holy Spirit? This church in the early 70s had a massive crisis because of these very issues. So way before my time and your time, well, some of you were here, I think. But uh, we think about me and my relationship with God. Am I filled with the Holy Spirit? What does Paul say here? You are being built together to become a dwelling as a group in which God lives by his Spirit. You, you can't be part of that if you're at home. <laughs> you can't be part of that if you're isolated. This is an organic, corporate thing that is going on here. God lives in a group of people. What Paul says is that Christians are like the temple that God calls home. I think it's amazing too because of the trajectory of this chapter. I don't know if you can remember way back to the beginning when Ian preached on the first few verses of chapter 2. One writer says there is a real contrast between the first three and the last three verses of this chapter. The lowest degradation expressed in the one and the highest elevation expressed in the other. Paul begins this chapter by talking about people who were dead, who were disobedient, who were dominated by blindness, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature like the rest we were by nature objects of wrath. He ends this chapter by speaking of these same people as the very building where the eternal God makes his home. Isn't that a massive contrast? Power and artistry and the togetherness that we yearn for but there's, there's more going on here let, let me just try and draw to a close over the next like three hours I don't really mean that when I say draw to it my mum always tells me off for saying let's draw to a close and then you talk for another 20 minutes and people expect well draw to a close but it might take a little while this is my last point this concept is all about the presence of God being near. In the garden, as we've seen, God's presence was near. 
Intimacy was endured. Everything made sense. But when that intimacy was disrupted, God withdrew. God's presence was gone. And the activities of daily life carried on for Adam and Eve. And yet now they were empty and devoid of meaning. I don't want to be trivial by making the contrast here between pointlessness and purpose. What what, what I'm trying to say by that statement is that when God departs, we have to find things to replace him with in order to find significance. And what we end up doing is making things that were never designed to be ultimate things into ultimate things because otherwise we have no meaning. Whatever our hands find to do, somehow we still feel incomplete. Whatever values we try to live by in the end, none of them have any ultimate basis when God has gone. So the whole story of the Bible, on one level, is how God's presence can come back again. Do you remember at the end of Genesis chapter 3? Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden and as they look over their shoulder, what do they see? An angel with a flaming sword going, even if they wanted to get back into the garden, they're going to get minced, cut to smithereens. They have no way of going back and knowing again the intimacy that they've now lost. The story of the Bible is how that problem is put right. But again, there's a problem here because the nearer we come to God the more we want to run away from him. Let me give you an illustration. Some of you know that I run my own business. But because of my work in the church I'm very rarely in the office. I go into the office maybe half a day or one day in the week. So I have to rely on other people to manage things while I'm working here in the church. Now imagine if one of my staff kind of overstepped the mark, shall we say, and decided that from now on it was their business. And while the boss is away, I'm going to be the one in charge. And they begin to start ordering people around. Telling people what to do and what they can't do. It would work fine, wouldn't it? Except for one thing. When the real boss goes in for the one day a week that he's in and he finds out that somebody else has been pretending to be the boss. I cannot imagine the shame and humiliation and embarrassment that the person who pretends to be the boss would feel when the real boss walks in and catches them pretending. I, I imagine you'd want the ground to swallow you up. I'm sorry to use a personal illustration like that. that. I'm not thinking that that's happening, by the way. If any of my staff ever listened to this on the website. But I, w- I want you to get that illustration because this is how it is between us and God. We try to be our own master and we push God away because we want to be in charge and the nearer God comes to us the shame and embarrassment that we feel when we're trying to do something that was his prerogative is very painful apart from the fact that things begin to unravel when we do that our problem is that when God comes near to us and we realise that we've usurped him causes shame and embarrassment and fear and we cannot face him 
And all the way through the Bible, this is the great theme. How can God come near to us and we still be safe? When his glorious goodness exposes our petty self-centeredness. In the Old Testament, God formed a nation. He gave them his word. He instructed them to build a temple where he would make his dwelling with people. But even then, only certain priests could go in one day a year. And even then, only by killing animals to atone for their guilt. But in the New Testament, Jesus comes along. I'm skipping many years. Do you remember Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem? He goes into the temple and he sees the money changers in the courts and it, it says in the Gospels that he made a whip it must have taken him a few minutes so he wasn't just flying off the handle and then he goes back into the temple courts and he literally whips the money changers out of his father's courts the religious leaders come to Jesus they don't criticise him for doing what he did Somehow they acknowledge that he's right to do what he did. What they want to know is, who, who made you the boss? Who gave you the authority to come into this temple and do it? Somebody needed to do it. But who told you to do it? That's their question. Do you remember Jesus' enigmatic reply? He said, I'll give you one sign. Destroy this temple and I'll build it again in three days. And they said, it's taken 46 years to get this far. It's still not finished yet. What on earth is he talking about? And John says, in John chapter 2, the temple he spoke of was his body. All the fullness of God dwelt not in a geographical place, but in him. Jesus was saying that you can't meet with God in a place, in a shrine, in a temple. The place where you meet with God is the person of Jesus Christ. He said to them, destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. Speaking of the resurrection, Jesus is saying these temples on earth are a picture of the great reality of God dwelling with his people through me, Jesus. And the way that God deals with our sin and shame is not through the sacrifice of animals, but through his death on a Roman cross. He was put outside. He was alienated. He was alone and forsaken. He cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew what it was to be a foreigner, an alien, a stranger. He knew what it was to be outside in the cold. So that we could be brought in forever. His body was broken to atone for our sins. When Jesus died, it says the curtain in the temple in Jerusalem was torn. Not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom. Why? To signify that we can now come in. And this whole building that is being built with him, as it says here, as the chief cornerstone, rises to become a holy temple. Paul now says something even more profound, that because of Jesus, God comes to indwell his people by his Spirit. The end of the Bible is even more amazing, isn't it? In Revelation, a new creation is described, and a voice is heard. Revelation chapter 21. This is what it says, verse 3. Now the dwelling of God is with man, and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. No more pointlessness. God is back. 
Our sin has been overcome and intimacy is restored. What Paul is saying here in Ephesians is that the church is the beginning of that happening. The church is the place now where God dwells with his people. It will be glorious then, but it's begun now. Sorry. It is powerful. It is aesthetically beautiful. It expresses the togetherness that we yearn for. And it has purpose. Does your idea of church match up to this one? Are you ready to trust in Jesus? To confess sins? To commit to one another? I I, want to suggest to you that the church is the most reasonable of things. We need to describe, as Paul does here, what the church is so people will know it. But more than that, we need to live it so that people will see it. Paul uses the word here in verse 19, consequently. He's appealing to his Gentile friends here. He's really saying to them, guys, don't be down in the dumps. Remember what you were. And think about what you now are. You're not strangers, aliens, foreigners anymore. You have nothing to complain about. Christ has brought you in. You don't have to be paranoid anymore. You don't need to be defensive anymore. You don't need to hide anymore. You don't need to hesitate anymore. You can come in and enjoy all the privileges. When we live as if we are the centre, it makes us very miserable. But the gospel lifts us up out of all of that to be part of something much bigger than any one of us. Your life has significance. Because of God's power and artistry. The gospel calls you to God and it calls you to one another. The church is the one place where you can belong. And in the end, the church is the one place where you can be truly thankful, safely vulnerable, and genuinely outward looking. Does your idea of church match? this one. Oh man.